Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's always a treat to debut an author and a book. Boy, a double pleasure today. And this beautiful book is called City Under One Roof. And Iris Yamasita is our author. Iris, you want to hold up your own book so we can all really admire? Because mine, this for those of you who don't know what an advanced reading copy is, this is it. It's basically um, a printout of the manuscript. It probably still has typos in it. It may have numbered. But this is what I am sent to read several months, well, with luck, sometimes only a couple of weeks before the actual event. And uh, that allows me to talk to Iris, who has happily signed our shipment of City Under One Roof. And if UPS can make it through California weather, <laughs> they're going to pick them up and bring them over here. But given the state of uh, flooding and so forth in California, they might not show up till next week. Anyway, Iris, what a pleasure to meet you. Do you, um, I have an introduction that I can pull, but would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks so much, Barbara. It's such a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, this is my debut novel. So I'm so excited. Um, I only just got my copy yesterday <laughs> because mine also have uh, my shipment has been lost in the ether somewhere. So I just went out and bought one. <laughs> so, um, so, but I came from the screenwriting world. Um, I uh, was nominated for an Academy Award for Letters from Iwo Jima. Um, which was a uh, film directed by Clint Eastwood um, 2006 um, and was nominated in 2007. Um, and so I've, I've been working in the Hollywood sphere for a while. Um, and, but this is my first venture into writing a novel. Um, although it was always my first love uh was you know i i always wanted to write a novel so this is a dream come true but i could never finish a novel so screenwriting is a lot shorter there's only about 100 pages and a lot of white space so i thought oh i can actually finish one of those so i switched over to screenwriting but now i'm back to my first love of writing books and i'm so excited to have my well wonderful for you and i would think you know, that I, we've talked to a lot of people who've gone both directions. We've talked to authors who have gone to screenwriting, and we have talked over 33 years with screenwriters who have come to books. And of course, the obvious difference for a screenwriter coming to books is that you don't have a camera and you don't have an actor. And so you have to fill in the work that the camera does showing location and landscape and that the actor does with voice and um action and so forth so you know has that been difficult for you to do that um that's exactly what um i tell people the difference is when you're uh, a screenwriter you're you're the writer but when you're writing a novel you wear many hats you're the director the cin cinematographer the costume designer the casting director all of that so yes it's much um it's much more torturous to write a novel, I would say, um, but it's a lot more liberating because um, there are less people, because there are less people involved. It's actually, it feels like it's, it's, it's longer to write, but it's easier to get to production 
In a way, because there's not as many people involved that you need and not the millions of dollars that you need as well in um, producing a screenplay. So I have many unproduced screenplays that, uh, <laughs> you know, no, not a lot of people get can read other than your agents and the producers. Um, but the the wide audience will never see even even if I got paid for it. So it's really great to be able to hold something that um, is a product of your work. So that I think that's, um, yeah, it's exactly what you said. There's so, there's so much more involved in writing the novel. But again, it's it's so much more um, liberating and, it, and you can do original work, which is another difference when you're working in screenwriting. Most of the time you're working off of somebody else's um, IP intellectual property. So you're adapting a book or you're uh, doing a, a sequel or you're, you know, something that already exists. So writing um, something original is very liberating. Absolutely. Plus, you know, it's your solo effort, at least until you send it to an editor. And you know, I've always understood that screenwriting was basically, you might write the script yourself, but producing or making a film or television is a collaborative effort. And so, you know, obviously there's a lot of negotiation that has to evolve. Um, when I talk to authors who have gone to screenwriting, their difficulty is chopping out um, because, you know, basically a script is, is dialogue, isn't it, with some directions. And that's hard for, for many authors. And it's interesting, the books, you know, for example, Tony Hillerman's books, the first time they were adapted for television, they didn't go very well because they're mostly internal, inter, let me try it again, internal monologues. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's not a lot of dialogue in the new uh, Hillerman that Robert Redford and someone else, I think it's George R. R. Martin are getting produced, which I have watched. They had to, they had to rely, you know, bring up the dialogue and dial down everything else. So it's actually a very different experience to watch it. And they're not, they're not, they don't feel like the books in many ways, which is hard for readers. Readers often complain that the movie version is not faithful to the book, but you know, it can't be. Yeah, I, I agree because yeah, there's, a, as you, as you said, there's a lot of like inner monologue. There's a lot of um, detail and description, which, um, you know, when you're, when you're screenwriting, you don't do any of that. The director decides what, you know, how it's going to look. And so, um, yeah, the, it is a very different format. And I can tell, because I have taught screenwriting, I can tell who came from writing prose, because you'll see like they have long narratives or descriptions that, you know, that's never going to make it to the screen. So you have to chop, 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 chop. So um, yeah, identifying um, what the main beats are, as you know, as we say in screenwriting, um, is a lot more difficult if you're coming from writing uh, novels and how to pare it down. And there's and you know it is very formulaic a lot of times in screenwriting, um, but it's because you only have two hours, you know, you, you have very limited time. And so this is what works and you have to kind of hone in on that and um, know what act one, act two, and act three is going to look like. 
Well, we won't go into long-form television here, which is actually a much more friendly, uh, much friendlier way as a rule to do a complicated book. But let's talk about Iris's book, because that's really what we're here for. It's called City Again, Under One Roof. And in, in the various glowing reviews, and you've had wonderful reviews, Iris, but I'm going to read the opening line from one of the starred reviews that you got. Unusual topography plays a major role in screenwriter Yamashita's atmospherically charged debut, which we could call a locked city mystery. I love that, uh, because locked room mysteries um, are, are having a thing at the moment. And sometimes people confuse a locked room mystery with what's called a, a closed circle. A locked room mystery is an impossible crime. And the whole point of a locked room mystery is for the reader to figure out and the author to have created the puzzle of how did it happen? That's not really who did it. It's not really why did, was it done, but it's how was it done? Whereas a closed circle, a sort of country house, or in this case, a small community, is different because it just means that there are a whole lot of people there that are within a boundary. And those are the people involved in the crime. Those are likely to be, one of them is likely to be the perpetrator, et cetera. So what do you think you wrote now that I've talked to you about which, do you see this as a locked room mystery or a locked circle mystery, closed circle? Yeah, definitely not an impossible crime locked room mystery. All of these terms were kind of new to me when I uh, came into this book world because we don't talk about that in the screenwriting world. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, it's um, what I've been saying is it's a locked city mystery. Which is right, different from a locked room mystery, uh, but yeah, but fascinating to me all the same. Um, all of these, all these different genres. Well, one of the interesting things about crime fiction are, are structures. You know, the different forms of storytelling, and for a lot of authors, especially people writing their first novel, crime fiction is a great way to go because a structure is already kind of in place, and you know, you don't have to figure out. Um, how to how to tell your story it's there's an outline so to speak for it and that makes it really fairly interesting but I loved your log city and I guess the big question is why did you go to Alaska I note in the acknowledgement you say something about the city of Whittier which isn't really you know your city but maybe is kind of a inspiration for your city but what attracted you to Alaska to do this yeah, the city, the real city of Whittier, Alaska did inspire the story. And um, it, I saw a documentary and it was over 20 years ago because um, it was back when uh, the only way into the city is through a tunnel. And at the time that I'd seen this documentary, it was only via train. And in 2000, they opened up the tunnel to car traffic. So now you can go by car. But, um, you know, that was, first of all, it was very intriguing. And then the idea that, uh, you know, most of the residents just live in a single building was just fascinating. And I didn't have a story back then, but it, it always was in the back of my mind is what a cool setting, you know, it just, it, you know, it sounds like there should be a story there. And it took over 20 years to actually come up with a story that was a mystery and um, I had originally thought of it for uh, a streaming outlet, like an, 
Netflix or an Amazon. And uh, I just thought a, a murder mystery would be would be great. And I wrote a pilot and um, it, it started there. And then, you know, so most of the times you go from book to uh, screen somehow. And for me, it was, well, the idea was, it went the opposite. I started the idea for screen and then I moved it over to, um, to, to a book. I love the idea that location inspires you. I'm a reader who really loves landscape. And I often, um, I mean, for me, landscape is most of the time a, a character in the book, which one reason I'm drawn to books, like I've already mentioned, Tony Hillerman, many, many books where the setting is, um, it, it's, it's just an integral to the, to the story. Um, but tell me why the only way in is, was a tunnel. Is this, there's a mountain range in front of, of what yes. this little community is? Is that the deal? Yes, um, there, the tunnel goes through a mountain and the city was originally built as um, a military base. I think it was kind of a, like a secret military base. Uh -huh. And they had two high rise buildings back then where you know they all lived and um then there was an earthquake like a 9.2 earthquake that kind of destroyed the base and so they shut it down and um so one building it just um it's just a shell of itself and then the other um they turned it into a condo and that's where most of the residents live or in my fake town which is inspired by the real town all the residents live there um, I also changed a little bit of the uh, topography just to um, so that my story could uh, work better. But I do have both of those buildings, one, you know, the, the ghostly shell building and then the other, the condo building where they live. I, I do have um, both. And, and yes, the setting is very much a character. Um, it just, you know, it's it's just such a wonderful, for me, it's such a wonderful setting. And I went and I visited there and I, uh, the real city, and I did some research um, and it, and all, there's a, a lot of tunnels. There's the tunnel to get to the city. There's pedestrian tunnels. There's a tunnel to get from the residence to the school. And then um, in my fake town, there's tunnels underneath the building. I love it. So tunnels, of course, are vulnerable. You know, they're vulnerable to avalanche. They're vulnerable to earthquakes. So, you know, it's perfectly possible that if you're only ingress and egress from a place as a tunnel, that in fact, it can be completely shut off if something happens. It must have been the 19, was it 1963 or 64, that terrible earthquake? Yes, exactly. Lots of Anchorage must have been what took out Whittier too, right? Yes, that's exactly right. 1964. Wow, you have a great knowledge of history. <laughs> well, I have, um, I, I've spent time in Alaska myself, although not in Whittier, but um, I have a friend called Dana Stabenow who writes a wonderful Alaskan series, and she stays with us in the winter. She's right now at the moment up in New York, but um, I've learned a lot about Alaska, you know, from her and also from traveling there. And, you know, when Dana started writing back in the very early 90s, Alaska was so regional that it didn't attract much interest from New York publishing. I mean, it was just like, you know, could have been the Solomon Islands or Tibet or something as far as they were concerned. But the cruise industry has, you know, made a tremendous impact on people's familiarity with Alaska. 
and then television like the greatest catch or whatever i think you know has um has also so alaska is no longer that really remote 49th state it's much more familiar uh to people and it also is one of the last real wildernesses i mean there are not that many places where you can truly isolate people and you know alaska is still because it's so vast and there's so few people there uh you can do that or the geography of whittier you know what you call it what is it port meteor i yeah i gave it a fake name of port uh point meteor i'm sorry i have it right here point meteor right um so i mean but that's that's a plausible community in alaska It, it would be harder i think to you know to get people to maybe in wyoming but you know in a more populous state it would be harder for people to believe it so oh yeah definitely the isolation um is a big part of the story and um maybe more so in my sequel that I'm working on but it feels like a a bit of a western you know because it's still sort of this frontier you know it's it's where people where it's not as um densely populated and there are are a lot of these little tiny towns so it has that sort of you know that feeling um of being like on the frontier in almost in a sense and that really appealed to me right well it is um you know except for the the, i mean the native communities tend to be most of them i think further north and often on the on the coast i've actually sailed all the way around Alaska, the northwest passage cruise from seward all the way around and then across Canada to Greenland, which is extremely interesting. But Dana said another thing that I've often thought about in, and it applies to other places, but particularly to Alaska, which is basically a frontier um, territory tends to attract the radical left and the radical right. So the people who are living in your community are probably um, not the normal townsfolk. I mean, there may be a few, but but oftentimes there are people who really want to be off the grid for one reason or another. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I had read that uh, the I had mentioned that the tunnel opened for car traffic in 2000, and actually there were some protests from the residents there. <laughs> they wanted to be left alone, so they didn't like the fact that it was going to open to car traffic. So yeah, I feel like um, it does attract some interesting people. And uh, that was sort of my idea when I was thinking of writing this is that, um, you know, the people who live in this fiction, in my fictional town are full of people who have secrets um, who and who might be running away from something or someone. So all of the... um, or the characters that I highlight in the book um, have a little bit of that aspect of, you know, they have a reason for why they're there in this locked city and including the protagonist, including the investigator. Right, which we'll get to, because I, I do think that, you know, that you have to give characters histories as well as personalities in order to make them really interesting to the reader. But we haven't mentioned climate because one other isolating factor um, for this community is that um, in the winter, you know, the temperatures are severe. It's also dark 
um, for great periods. You know, we here in, in Arizona are all going, oh, damn, because, you know, we passed the solstice and we're now heading towards summer. Whereas people in Alaska can hardly wait until December 22nd when they start, you know, moving towards sunlight. And um, I've been there in winter and it is very different, you know, when it doesn't get light until after 10 o'clock and, um, you know, it's dark in the middle of the afternoon. So it does affect people's rhythms um, and how they lead their lives when, you know, A, it's really cold and B, it's dark for so long. Yeah, um, so this town, um, it's 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 bustling during the summer. There's that's the high season because there are cruise ships that come in and out, and um, there's a lot more activity. There's people who come temporarily during the summer to work there. They do have restaurants and shops, and then and then it kind of just shuts down, and then people leave. Like all the temporary help um, leave, and I and it's like the hardiest people who remain because they do get temperatures of you know minus 35 and um the wind factor you know wind can go 150 miles per hour so and and that's kind of why you know living in a building for them actually works because they don't <laughs> everything is there or through a tunnel so they don't have to endure the elements but um, yeah, it, it, I think it takes a certain kind of person to be able to live through that because um, I think this is true for the real city, but also in my fake city, people kind of come and go like they live there for a year or two and then they then they have to leave. So the long timers, you know, they have a little bit of a different dynamic because they are there for a reason. So the, and those are the ones that I kind of concentrate on. So we've talked about this being isolated and remote and, you know, a, an interesting community. Um, but your investigator, let's talk about her because she's actually an urban cop. I mean, and, you know, she's from Anchorage, right? Yes. So she comes from Anchorage. And um, so I have the kids giving them nicknames like, you know, if you're, you're a temporary person during the summer, you're they call them the summer people. But if you're just a straight outsider, like uh, our protagonist is the investigator, she's an otter because it sounds like other. So they just call her an otter. Um, so yes, she is the outsider in the equation. And um, she does get trapped there after the avalanche. And um, so she's um, investigating this gruesome murder, but uh, she has a secret to hide as well because um, she has a personal tragedy which is what compels her to investigate this case and it does kind of mess with her through the book and you don't and you know you as the reader might not trust her as well <laughs> as a narrator we can't do any spoilers here but um yeah. her, her story really is um central to who she is and what what goes on and you as a reader you have to really empathize with her because it, it is truly a tragedy um but what is the what is the crime you say gruesome murder but what is the actual crime that has happened here in um point meteor that brings her in and why why is she brought in they they it's too small a community to have any local police or or is it 
Yeah. Uh, so it starts off with, um, I have the book in three voices. So one is obviously the investigator, but then I also have a, a longtime resident, a teenager um, whose name is Amy Lin, and her mother runs the local Chinese restaurant. And she is the one who finds these um, these body parts washed up on the shore, a dismembered hand and a dismembered foot. And um, so the second voice, uh, so I have, um, she's a second voice. And then I have another third voice, which is another resident. Um, and she has a mental disability and she has a pet moose named Denny. <laughs> and she wears a different colored beret. She wears a different colored beret every day. And she works, uh, she talks in what I say, word salads, because they don't always make sense. Um, but the inspiration was, again, I had mentioned this tunnel, the only way in, and it's a very long tunnel. It's like two and a half miles long. And I just felt like as you travel through the tunnel that you're falling down the rabbit hole and you're going to end up in this strange and crazy wonderland full of these quirky characters. So in that analogy, um, Kara, the protagonist, the investigator, she's like Alice falling through the rabbit hole and um amy lynn the teenager she's sort of like the white rabbit that she sometimes chases for clues and then lonnie is the mad hatter ah i was wondering where the cheshire cat was but uh, the mad hatter uh, <laughs> there's a hint there there is a reference to the cheshire cat but and it's not the cat because i think i do have a cat it's not the cat so if anyone of your readers find that uh I don't know what you get. A signed book? I don't know. <laughs> From me, write me. <laughs> when we get our signed books, I always encourage our readers to in um, to read debuts because I think it's so important that we support new authors and new voices. And also, as I frequently say to them, if you don't buy in in a in a debut, you never get to say I was there or I was smart enough or whatever. When, as it always happens, some of the debuts go on to become wild successes, some fall away. I mean, you know, it's not a 100% hit rate, but um, you have to cast a wide net. But I'm really, um, we have spent 33 years developing new voices and introducing them to readers because we think it's so important. So Iris, there are authors whose entire careers have been traversed with us. Michael Conley would be one example. Lisa C would be another example um, because they're they're quite diverse. But you know, we love to introduce our readers to new authors and then follow up on it. There's no point in you know in in doing a first book and then not sticking with it. So sometimes I have to really nag publishers and say, I just had to do that with one. I said, you know, so we made a big fuss about this debut next year. Why aren't we doing something this year with the second book? And they go, oh, so. Well, you thank, know. You. Yeah, thank you so much because I, I felt nothing but like a warm welcome to this world and writing books. And I find there's so many kind like booksellers like your bookstore and others and other writers who are also supportive and a lot of Instagrammers. So I have felt nothing but love out here. <laughs> I don't know if it's the same for everybody, but it feels much different from the screenwriting world. Well, it's it's not competitive in the same way. There's there's room 
you know, there's room in with readers for all kinds of voices, all kinds of stories. And um, our experience is that authors are very supportive of each other. And the truth is, you know, that your success can lift other people. It isn't it isn't a competition, you know, it's more like a support group. Um, and in the crime fiction world, I think is much more like that than maybe the romance world where they have been roiled by any kinds of, you know, lots of disputes and debates. Social media, Iris, has really changed, you know, the way everything works. And it certainly has changed the way books are brought to the public. It's changed the way that readers interact with authors. I mean, I'm telling you, way back when Sue Grafton and I, you know, we did we did all our books together from G on. We're the same age. And so I still, it's like losing my sister when she died. But Sue, right up to the end, would not, would never answer a fan question unless they wrote her a formal letter. She did not, you know. Oh, wow. Well, um, but you know, in a way, it was a really great decision because it weeds out all the people who just have an axe to grind, or you know, because it's free, they can complain or could comment anonymously. Because social media does allow anonymity, which I think often lets people say and do things that if they had to actually hold up their hand and, you know, take accountability for it, they would not do. But so you get a chance today to interact with readers in a way that was not at all possible when I started the store. And we have the same opportunity, you know, as booksellers, we have a lot more interaction with our customers than we did when they had to write us letters. We used to send out printed newsletters with stamps and people sent checks, you know, <laughs> it's really kind of hard to imagine that now. We spent a lot of time folding over and stamping and mailing newsletters for years. In fact, um, I've been talking to the University of Arizona about taking on the, the bookstore um, files and so forth. And we have years worth, boxes and boxes and boxes worth of, um, of our monthly newsletter. Because we have written, I've written a newsletter every month for 33 years to our customers. Wow. But now, now it's electronic and it's a, a, a very different way of doing it. Now there's like 20,000 people and it used to be there were like three or four. You know, the scale has really right. gone yeah, up. And you can reach much broader, like around the world. I'm, I mean- I Well, we do, know. we do. We actually have an international audience. We send books overseas every day. Wow, that's fantastic. So, yeah, it's, it's just, it's really been interesting to evolve. But I think, you know, the, the way that publishing works today puts a lot more pressure on you as the author to interact with fans and communicate through social media and so forth, rather than in the old days, the publicity department doing that. So, you know, you'll, you'll find that out as you move along. Um, and again, you know, you've had such kind reviews and such enthusiastic reviews from so many people that, you know, I could quote at length here. Um, and that's great because that means that their social media is also working for you if they say nice things. So there's a kind of geometric progression today in, in how this works that was not possible before. Yes, um, I think for me, the social media is... Uh... <laughs> It's also kind of a new thing because I am an older writer and um, write even in 2006 when we were doing publicity for the movie letters from Iwo Jima, it was 
a, a much, much different experience. I mean, if you did a, a radio podcast, you would actually have to go to the radio station. And it was it was much more tiring in a way <laughs> because you had to physically be at every place. Um, so the and the social media, I'm still trying to get used to, and I don't have too many followers yet, so it hasn't been too hard to you know to answer and and you know interact with um, people. But yeah, but I, will I grow. <laughs> pardon. It will grow, and you know, at some point, you have to set boundaries. I mean, you know, you could waste every day. I could spend every day just doing social media. And, and I think it becomes overwhelming. And the more successful you are as an author, again, because of this geometric progression where you start with maybe 10 people and then suddenly you have 300 people and then suddenly it's 3,000 people. You do have to make decisions about the best use of your time. In other words, you know, you could you could never write. You could just do yes. social media. Yes, I, I, can, I can see that. <laughs> But anyway, so we digress. But um, but one of the things I like is it's really possible to reach a lot of people for a new author that would have been much harder before. Um, and this month has had a number of really wonderful first novels that have come out. Um, and you never know month to month what you're what you're going to get. But um, yours is certainly one. Uh, we had uh, another one last night, also from your same publisher, Jennifer Herrera whose um, book, The Hunter, came out. Um, and then we have another book by Anna Reyes, also from Penguin Random House, called, uh, what's it called? The House in the Pines. Um, you know, it's a very rich month, and it's hard for me to, um, you know, to give the same amount of attention to each one, although I really do try. Um, yeah, and and one um, who gave me a review, Mary Kabi. Kubica. Mary Kubica. She was here last night. There yeah. last night as well. Yeah. So yeah. Um so great to be among the mix of all those great writers that you just mentioned. Well, it is, you know, and it's it'll be fun to see, you know, how how the new careers progress. And then inevitably, of course, you know, there's some that die away. So it's just life, you know, the stream of life, how it all goes but we like dipping our toes into it. Anyway, back to your book. Once again, I have digressed. Um, so your protagonist comes down, your sleuth rather, uh, one of three voices in the book arrives from Anchorage, but why is she sent there? Is there is there no local law enforcement able to deal with this crime that has been discovered? Um, yeah, there, there's, there are two local um, police officers in my fictional town because in the real town it's different but in my fictional town um which is more aligned with how the city was um before the year 2000 um there are only two officers and they are not equipped to handle murders so um anchorage police is sent over to do the actual investigation and um the first officer that arrives kind of chalks it up to a phenomenon that has been happening and it's not criminal and that is based on um true phenomenon uh that I was just intrigued by that there were these body parts washing up on the Pacific coast since um like 2007 
Yeah, and uh, and then I talked to another um, person who said it also hap was happening on the East Coast as well. Um, so it was just something very intriguing. And but, you know, they just they, they do have um, an explanation that it's not criminal. So that's what the first um, officer who arrives just says that, yeah, it's, it's just something that happens. Wow. Well, we won't go into it. We don't want to do any spoilers as to what the theory is that random body parts are watching around <laughs> the Pacific and showing up. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think I think on the East Coast, some of it is there's just been a higher suicide rate or accident rate or fishermen, you know, who get cankled up in nets and all kinds of things. But um, so but the, the premise in your book is that maybe this is intentional. It's not just you know, whatever the phenomenon of body parts is, but somebody has actually been killed. Yes, that's so that's the premise that the our protagonist, the investigator arrives um, after that, the first one, she she shows up because um, she has an inkling that maybe it's um, that it is a murder. And then she does discover some evidence at when she's there that it actually was a murder. So, I mean, among the local residents, the moose is great. I really love the moose, uh, but they're kids. Um, and I think, you know, they're they're interesting too, because there's some teenagers that are, um, and how do you really, how do you really contain teenagers? And aren't they bored in a community like this? I mean, you know, do they have much of the way of internet access or whatever? What is it they do to keep themselves, you know, busy? That that was a question that I had. So um, when I went to um, Whittier, Alaska to do some research, I did ask one of the younger people, younger residents, um, what do you do here for fun? And he said, um, it's mostly church and bonfires. <laughs> I like that. That sounds sort of medieval in a way. You know? <laughs> I like that. But, you know, I, I mean, I asked that because when we were sailing across the top of Canada and these various native communities that, you know, are right there on the ice, but of course the ice is melting and it's not going well, they all had these enormous satellite dishes and they clearly had internet access. So even though, you know, you were way up there, um, at, you know, at the Arctic Circle or not too far from it, everybody was chatting away. We had internet access on the ship. So I would assume that your community would have had, you know. Oh, yes, they definitely have internet access. And what about um, cell phone? Is that, you know, do they have a yeah, cell phone? You, yeah, you, they also have cell phone. Um, but I imagine, right, there's probably a range where mm -hmm. the internet and the cell phone works. And if you go out towards the wilderness, you're going to lose all of that. But um, yeah, we did stay there because they do, you can stay there. There, like, as in my um, fake town, there is an inn in the building. Um, I In the real town, there's also other um, inns that are not part of the building. Um, I'm not sure, I, I'm not quite sure if they're open all year round. I mean, obviously summer is the high season. Right. Um, and so they do have internet access, at least in the in the um, in the inns. Well, when the weather's decent, I mean, unfortunately, you know, it could be both cell phone and internet seriously 
disrupted um, that is true that's by true. weather so it's not and, and the reason I mentioned that is one of the things that makes it so hard for writers of contemporary crime fiction is how do they disable people's cell phones or internet or whatever in order you know to uh, accomplish various things I mean I have an author for example who had to sink a, a, um, a chase under Central Park where you know there was no cell phone penetration, and you know there's there's a lot of um, you know like the batteries die, you know the batteries give out or the cell phone is dead and all. But I mean you can't. A lot of mystery plots don't don't work if there is this broad communication available. And so you're lucky that in the place you are, you can you have a natural, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and going out of range yeah. because and that is. That is true, I think, of Alaska, because a lot of it is wilderness. And so, um, you know, there's no, there are places where no one lives. So there's obviously not going to be any cell phone or, you know, there's not, there's not going to be reception because they don't have cell phone towers in the middle of the wilderness. So that is, again, I think that's one of the attractive things about Alaska, again, being kind of like the frontier where, it's you know not not all the trappings of civilization are there in every remote area of Alaska so to sum up I'm going to quote more from this fabulous starred review here when 17 year old Amy Lynn and friends discover a severed hand and foot notice severed which does imply intention rather than accident hand and foot in Hidden Cove, where they retreat to smoke pot, another thing that the teenagers <laughs> do to, you know, pass the time. Detective Kara Kennedy comes from Anchorage to investigate, um, and she may have hidden motives for wanting to be on the case. Then a blizzard and an avalanche block the tunnel, and harrowing secrets and lingering lies surface, along with more body parts. The disappearance of a mother and her two sons prompts the search that leads to a spellbinding, unforgettable climax in an unpredictable resolution. Now, we're not going to talk about that, but I have read it, and I can agree that it's definitely an unpredictable resolution. So it points to you, because you know the, one of the reasons a book really works, uh, Iris, is if the end is as good as the beginning. If you, you know, if the reader is motored through the book and it had a great premise and then it just dies or it's implausible or it's stupid, the reader is really disappointed, but you managed to avoid that. Do you think screenwriting, you know, helped you develop the surprise? Well, um, yes, as I as I had mentioned, I was thinking that of this originally for a um, streaming series. And uh, I had worked, I was working with a producer who had um, wanted to take it out and sell it. And, um, you know, as part of the prep for pitching it, um, you need to come up with a season, but then also like, well, what if they want a season two? What are you going to, what are you going <laughs> to tell them? <laughs> so I came up with a season two and, um, and that's what I had. I pitched the same thing to the book editor and uh, miraculously got the two book deal. Well, you know, I wanted to bring that out because, you know, a, another reason for people to be interested in a first novel is that they're guaranteed there's a second novel. Um, and sometimes that doesn't happen. It's, it's sort of rare, but there are moments when, or have been occasions rather, when um, an author has 
published a first book, and for various reasons, that's it. I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird's the obvious one, or Gone with the Wind, but, um, and sometimes, in fact, it's the raging success of the first book that basically the author just, you know, that's it, you know, can't repeat it. Or, or other circumstances intervene, but in general, a reader would like to know that there is going to be more. So you are working, or you said you were what, nearly complete with your second book? Uh, with a with a first draft. So yes, I'm almost done with the first draft. And then, um, so we'll knock on wood and hope it, it can make it out the year after. <laughs> so it does it have Amy in it again? Um, what I'll say is it has some of the same characters that you'd be familiar with in book one and then some new ones. Some new ones, right. Yes. Well, yeah, no, that that's um, right. Well, I think that's wonderful news. Um, let's call Patrick back and see if there are any questions or comments that he would like to make. Um, Patrick's been to Alaska at least once. I have been to Alaska, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely beautiful. Um, yes, yeah, one, one of the questions that's come in is, um, do you have kind of a, an overarching vision of, of where you're going in, with the series, or are you just like one, one sentence ahead? Um, I do usually outline ahead of time so that I know where I'm going, um, but I don't know everything. So yeah, when I, I like I started reading or started writing um, the first book, I, I knew sort of that all the all the residents had secrets or all the characters had some kind of secret but I didn't always know what the secret was or it changed <laughs> right so that's kind of um with with book two I I'm I was pressured for time so I did um follow more of an outline but it did change everything always changes when you start writing right Barbara has Dana read the book do you know she hasn't yet. Um, she, until her own next Alaska novel comes out, I don't think she really wants to read any other Alaskan uh, mysteries. And, you know, there's always some fear that something will, um, you know, cross over unintentionally when you do that. Iris, have you found that to be true already? Because a lot of writers talk about what they read when they're writing or what they don't read when they're writing. You know, that has been a more of a problem with um being in the in in Hollywood because they are much stricter about we only want one mystery in a cold place for the whole year you know like it's right. <laughs> they're much stricter about um what they what they will show and if uh one studio has one you know then they're not going to do another one that's even like remotely in the same genre territory you know so um it's much harder because I, I'm always running into that I'm always like I have this great mystery in a cold place oh we already have a mystery in a cold place yeah and that's the door shuts whereas the book world it's a little it's a lot more open I think you know you can have several mysteries in a cold place with a female lead and as long as there's big differences it's all right you know <laughs> actually it's often true that books kind of clump together um you know and, and become promotable um by virtue of the fact that there are several if you like one you'll like the other as I say mm -hmm. it's really not a competitive community mm -hmm. yeah so I really I do like that about the book world that 
they don't, it's not as um, restrictive in terms of what you can write about and when, you know, like it seems like you have to have a stroke of luck to get the window where no one else has a cold city mystery that year, you know, <laughs> it's a lot of luck. Who do you like to read? You know, I, um, I'm a slow reader, so I, and I, I'm embarrassed to say that I haven't read a lot of mysteries. Um, I do, I mean, I'm talking about a book that came out a long time ago, but I really, really love is All the Light We Cannot See. Um, I'm sure that's a favorite book of a lot of your readers, um, but it's definitely a kind of writing that you know, it's really something to strive for. But I have started reading because now that I know that mystery is my genre, I have started reading um, mystery books. And um, I'm in the middle of reading one of Mary Kubica's books. And, you know, I'm, I'm really uh, drawn into it. Um, and I, I did just purchase her book that came out yesterday. So I'm going to dive into that one as well. Um, but I'm trying, I'm trying to identify some of the books behind you and I could, is that, uh, you know, a uh, lot of these are, is that a Brando biography? Oh, yes. I did actually, I met him and I got it signed. Ooh, wow. good for you. <laughs> so oh, cool. Um, this is a long story, but he, and then he told me that, oh, don't, uh, just because it says I wrote it don't believe everything. <laughs> Ghostwriting is an honorable profession that we're finding more and more about as time goes on. But yeah, this is, this is a long story. This is when I was working a full-time job and he was on a, a environmental consortium and um, our company was working with him. So this was before I got into Hollywood even. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. But um, most of these are uh, like uh, reference. Um, I did really like this book, Testament of Youth. When I was growing up, this was like, okay, I was just, this was my first book about war that really struck home with me. Like, oh, this is what war is like. Because, you know, I hadn't experienced war. And this is the first one that made me feel like what war was like. I have a question about your title. I think it's it's a great title. Was that was that yours or was this, that um, for City publisher? Under One Roof? Yeah, yeah. Titles are always hard. I um, I was first trying to make a Alice in Wonderland reference, but no one liked that. <laughs> and then I was thinking, um, yeah, I I did throw out the City Under One Roof. I think they wanted, uh they had mentioned city of ice and lies because that was you know it referenced cold and it referenced a little bit of intrigue with lies but then sounds I, like a george rr R. martin title or something or russian yeah <laughs> yeah 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 it sounds exactly. like a russian spy story or something right. yeah i saw a lot of books titled city of ice so i just thought you know it's going to get lost in the mix and then this is really representative the title of what's really unique about this place so um it it worked out well i think <laughs> hopefully yes no i Great think title. it's an excellent yeah. title i agree with patrick it's uh, you know expresses your um your block city concept right. very well 
Yeah. And then the graphic designer did such a great job to make it look, you know, give that feeling of cold mm -hmm. and mystery. So, yeah, happy with it. Let's see here. You know, that's about it for the actual questions that have come in. Okay. Anything you'd like to add? Um, uh, other things that I've talked about. Um, yeah, the, no, I, I think I already talked about the difference between writing for screen and writing for um, prose, but, you know, it, um, again, it's, it feels great to be able to do something original here in the book world, which is very different from the screen world. Original and all your own which is really very and very yeah and having um more control over the finished product and um yeah it does feel like it's your own creation so well it's I been a real pleasure to meet you iris and to talk to you city under one roof we highly recommend it um iris has, has said she's signed our books and if ups slogs through whatever atmospheric river is currently bedeviling wherever she is in california they will eventually get here um, please don't yeah. send them until you feel like the weather will be friendly because, you know, they can get ruined and we're not in a hurry for them. Yeah, no, the weather has cleared up, but I think it's just was um, there was a slowdown from the past from the days where it was very heavily raining. Okay. Um, so today is actually sunny, so it's actually fine. But it's just that I think everything got, um, you know, got slowed down by the last two days. Right. Well, anyway, thank you for doing that. And I want to thank all of you for watching us this evening. And yeah, um, thank you. Thank back. you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. It was really our pleasure. Thank you, Iris. Enjoy the rest of your evening, everybody. Good night. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.